This is the Cosmosphere Podcast, episode 29, Skylab at 50, blazing the trail for the International Space Station, Artemis, and beyond. Welcome back, everyone. I am John Molnix. I'm a volunteer here at the Cosmosphere, and in today's episode, we've got the audio from the Coffee at the Cosmo that was celebrating the 50th anniversary of Skylab, America's first space station. We had some amazing guests for this Q&A panel. Uh, first up, who joined us in person was Emily Carney, a spaceflight blogger and author, and also David Hitt, one of the authors of Homesteading Space, The Skylab Story, which we highly recommend you pick up a copy of. Uh, the Cosmosphere's gift shop has signed copies available, and these books make an excellent gift no matter what time of the year it is. Uh, but we are getting a little bit closer to Christmas with each passing month here uh, now that it is uh, July. So uh, make sure you get your shopping done early and often at the Cosmosphere's gift shop. Uh, joining us via Zoom, we had astronaut Jack Lausma and Mission Control Flight Director Milt Windler. Without any further delay, let's get into the Q&A for Skylab at 50. I'm Amy Meredith. I'm with the Cosmosphere, and I'm so glad to see such a great group for what I know is going to be a wonderful presentation this morning. Um, just to let you know, our delay, we do have Jack Lausma attempting to join us, but technology is not working in his favor today. So it's always nice for me to know when someone as brilliant as Jack Lausma can't make his computer work. It makes me feel a lot better about my world. We do have Milt Windler and with us three wonderful guests. I want to talk to you a little bit before I get too far into that about some of the things coming up at the Cosmosphere, all made possible through the wonderful support of our corporate partners. That's Evergy, Dillon's, Clayworks, KU School of Engineering, and RCB Bank. So we're grateful always to them for their consistent and constant support of all things good at the Cosmosphere. So we have a wonderful exhibit in the rotunda about Skylab. Um, this 50th anniversary uh, makes me feel a little old and makes me realize how fast time has gone, but it was fascinating then and it's fascinating today to see how they initially um, created the conditions that could prove that we could have that long-term existence in space. So um, please make sure that you check out our Rotunda exhibit and right by that exhibit following this presentation will be where David will be signing his books. If you haven't gotten one yet, they're available in the bookstore and um, great for gift giving. Get two copies, one for yourself and one for a gift. Then coming up in June, speaking of anniversaries, it's the 40th anniversary of Sally Ride's first mission. Isn't that amazing? I know. So we'll be celebrating that with um, an event that's free to members and a small fee to the public. Um, the actual date is June 18th of Sally's mission, but our event will be on June 16th here at the Cosmosphere. Shannon Wetzel will be leading us through some history. And we'll also have the opportunity early in June to interview Steve Hawley about his reflections on Sally ride. And that will be wonderful because I'm sure many of you know that Steve and Sally ride were married for five years. So it's great that we have that connection to her legacy. 
So we have all that coming up. And today, everything that we are doing today is really possible because of John Mulnix. He's amazing. He's amazing because he's a Cosmosphere volunteer and we need more of those. So if you want to be amazing like John, just call us. We'll get you set up. Look at split and the O'Connors and we have several. Marty, Marty could testify to this because where did you go? How many years have you been a volunteer? 41. See, I, I know. Thank you. Exactly. It's the reason Marty is doing so well today is because the Cosmosphere has enriched all those years, right? So John's a volunteer. Um, he's a wonderful writer. And he um, and Shannon collaborated on the copy that you'll see on the Skylab exhibit and the history there. He also was able to find some of the great photos that we have available um, that tell uh, the great story of how life was led on the Skylab. In 2017, he launched a podcast. How many of you listen to podcasts? Yeah, I have just started. I'm so sorry that I'm confessing that to you guys. I, um, but now I'm driving a, a long distances more frequently. And it's just such a great way to learn things. And so you have podcasters here today that have delivered great messages about space and space history. John has one that is dedicated to um, the Cosmosphere and another one called the Space Shot. So we're very grateful for what you've done with that. Um, also, he is an amazing artist through jewelry. So you didn't even put that in your bio, but it's just, you're very, you use your right and your left side of your brain. It's just amazing. So with no further ado, I'm going to turn it over to John, who was the one who wanted to make sure that we celebrated this in every way that we could without a major event, but this is a pretty great one, John. So thank you for putting it together. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I, I try to be an artist. I, I, you know, I do what I can for that. Um, before we get started here today, I want to introduce everyone here in person. Um, and then after that, we'll introduce our Zoom guests as well. And hopefully Jack can join us. Um, but we will press on here. Uh, to my left is Emily Carney. She is a writer, a podcaster, and a historian. Um, she's also a United States Navy veteran. Um, she's the co-host of the podcast called Space and Things, which if you haven't listened to it, you should definitely check it out. Um, it's a weekly podcast devoted to the exploration of space, covering the past, present, and future of spaceflight. And then to Emily's left is David Hitt. He's the co-author of two books, uh, my favorite and the one that really, I think, tells the, the story of Skylab the best is called Homesteading Space, the Skylab Story. And that was written with astronauts Owen Garriott and Joe Kerwin. He's also the author of Bold They Rise, which is the uh, look at the space shuttle early years. Um, David and Emily have both appeared in numerous documentaries on Skylab. Um, currently, David is working as a contractor at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center. Um, he's been doing that since 2002. And he's proof that you can be a journalist and eventually get into engineering long term, as we were talking about last night. So that's pretty cool. Um, he currently works for Jacobs as a systems engineer supporting payload integration for NASA's Space Launch System rocket. He's also the recipient of a NASA Silver Snoopy Award presented by the agency's astronaut office, which is a really cool honor. Joining us via Zoom. We can see Milt there. Um, Milton Milt Windler is a retired NASA flight director, best known for his work as one of the four flight directors during Apollo 13. 
Milt began his NASA career in 1959 supporting Project Mercury. He also served as the flight director, one of the flight directors during the Apollo program, supporting six lunar missions. After Apollo, Milt began work on the space shuttle program and Skylab, and he was also involved with the remote manipulator systems, so the robotic arm on the space shuttle, until his retirement from NASA in 1978. Uh, he, along with the four other Apollo 13 flight directors, were awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom for their work bringing the crew of Apollo 13 safely back to Earth. Um, he's also the recipient of a NASA Exceptional Service Medal as well, which is a really cool honor. And then uh, if we can get Jack to join, we we have. Okay, perfect. Just got the confirmation from Mimi. Um, Jack Lausma was the pilot for Skylab 3 um, from July 28th to September 25th, 1973. Um, he was also the commander of STS-3, logging over 1,600 or 1,619 hours in space. Uh, Lausma also spent 11 hours on two spacewalks outside of Skylab, which would be one heck of a view. I, I'm a little bit jealous of that. Um, he served as a backup docking module pilot. Of, um, oops, one second. Sorry here. For the United States crew on, a, on the Apollo-Soyuz mission, which was completed successfully in July of 1975. So we've got that 50th anniversary coming up here soon as well. Um, the three Skylab astronaut crews were awarded the 1973 Robert J. Collier Trophy for, quote, proving beyond question the value of man in future explorations of space and the production of data of benefit to all the people on Earth. So welcome, everyone, to the Cosmosphere. Perfect. And Jack, if you can unmute and turn on your camera for us. Give him a second here. There we go. We see you, sir. Good. Finally made it. Perfect. Thank you, Mission Controller. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so before we open up to the q and I'm going to do a very brief history of the Skylab program, um, trying to condense three human space flights and America's first station into a very short time was a challenge. So bear with me here. Um, Skylab, the station, the orbital workshop launched on May 14th, 1973 on NASA's last operational Saturn V rocket. Um, a modified S-4B, which was the third stage of the Saturn V rocket, was converted into the massive Skylab station. The Skylab cluster included the orbital workshop where the astronauts lived and worked, the airlock module, the Apollo telescope mount, and the multiple docking adapter. Uh, to this day, we were talking about this last night uh, during a barbecue, um, Skylab remains the largest single pressurized station in existence. So it was a pretty big, pretty big spacecraft. Uh, during launch, however, things didn't go exactly to plan. A section of Skylab's micrometeoroid shield tore off the rocket about 63 seconds into the flight. Uh, this led to the eventual loss of one of the solar panels, um, which you can you have the picture of Skylab up earlier. Um, but losing one of those solar panels and part of the micrometeoroid shield was a big problem for NASA. Um, it meant that the station was low on power and was experiencing higher than normal temperatures, which it was not designed to handle. Um, Skylab 2 was the first crewed mission to the station, and it was initially scheduled to launch just 24 hours after Skylab 1. 
Um, NASA had to delay the launch of Skylab 2 by 10 days, and that gave engineers, flight controllers, and astronauts time to come up with the tools and procedures that were needed to repair the ailing space station. Um, on May 25th, Skylab 2 launched with astronauts Pete Conrad, Paul Weitz, and Joe Kerwin. Uh, the crew was able to use the scientific airlock on Skylab, which was a small port on the side of the spacecraft, to deploy a parasol sun shield, um, which was able to protect the station from the intense radiation from the sun. They also conducted unprecedented extra, uh, extravehicular activities to free the stuck solar panel, which was damaged during the launch. Um, Skylab then had enough power to operate, and they were able to uh, operate their mission for 28 days before returning to Earth, having set the longest uh, spaceflight duration to that date, which was about to be broken by the crew of Skylab 3. Skylab 3 launched on July 28, 1973, with astronauts Alan Bean, Jack Lausma, and Owen Garriott. The crew conducted more EVAs and installed another sun shield. This twin pole design provided extra protection from the extreme heat of the sun. Uh, Skylab 3 astronauts also conducted Earth and solar observations, which further expanded our knowledge of our place in the solar system. Um, another cool objective of Skylab was the inclusion of the Skylab student project experiments, which was the first time that student designed experiments were flown in space. Uh, currently on the ISS, they've been doing student experiments for basically the whole 20 years of the program, which is awesome. Um, Skylab 3, the crew uh, set another spaceflight duration record at 59 days, which was shortly broken later by the crew of Skylab 4, uh, which was the final crewed mission to the station. Uh, it lifted off in November of 1973. Astronauts Jerry Carr, Bill Pogue, and Ed Gibson were an all-rookie crew, uh, which was another first for NASA. They ended up spending 84 days in space, which was the longest mission of the Skylab program. Um, and it wasn't broken until uh, NASA astronauts uh, stayed on the Mir station during the 1990s. The crew continued to gather astronomical and scientific data for analysis on Earth. They also had the good fortune of observing Comet Kohotek. How many of you remember Comet Kohotek? They were able to observe that from space, which was a really unique vantage point. Um, the crew continued to set productivity records thanks to a plan to maximize crew efficiency while in orbit, which was devised between the crew and ground teams. And we'll talk about this in a little bit. There was no uh, strike or mutiny on Skylab 4. We'll help dispel that myth a little bit later today. Um, Skylab later re-entered Earth's atmosphere on July 11th, 1979. Initially, there were plans to try to boost the orbit of the station to prolong its life so it could be visited by the space shuttle. Sadly, that did not happen, um, and the rest, as they say, is history. So with that, we are going to open it up to the Q&A section, um, and I'm going to just I'm gonna ask the first question here for Jack and Milt. Um, now that we're a half century out from Skylab, what do you think is the most lasting legacy of the program or the most important thing that was learned during the Skylab missions? Well, I'll uh, start with that. Hi, Jack. I haven't seen you in a while. Uh, um, I think that the, uh, the big thing that came out of Skylab, which is no surprise to anybody, is, is it, it, it put to rest uh, some of the myths that are around spaceflight and, uh, and proved that the crew or humans could operate in orbit for extended periods of time as has been shown in the space uh, station we have now. So 
I watched the uh, the medical community uh, go from saying you couldn't even swallow anything and you had to eat from tubes to uh, having sit-down dinners and turkey and all that stuff. So uh, we've come a long way. And Jack, what about you? Okay, I was just looking for the volume here, but uh, can you hear me okay? Yes, sir. Yeah, I think uh, Milt was right on. A lot of the uh, medical aspects of being in space for a long time were unknown. And so we obviously contributed to that greatly as well. But I uh, think on a more mechanical point of view, uh, it enabled us to uh, develop and build an international space station. Without the intervention that we got from Skylab, would have not been possible. Up until uh, Skylab, our longest uh, duration in flight had been 15 days with a Gemini space capsule, two guys on board, uh, eating, sleeping, wasting together in the size of a front, front of the seat of a Volkswagen Beetle for 15 days. And so we really didn't learn much about about living in space for a long period of time, except medically, perhaps. So the Skylab was that interim step that was required in order to make the International Space Station that we have today. And so I think that's one of its uh, greatest achievements uh, in uh, many ways. Um, uh, mechanically, how do we make this thing so people can live and work in a, in a large space and uh, do it efficiently, get all the work done that's necessary, and so it helped us to understand how building living quarters and the working quarters and the experimental efforts. It uh, taught us so much of mechanically how to build the International Space Station. I think it that was probably one of its uh, probably its greatest achievement. Awesome, thank you. I'm going to kick it over to uh, Emily and David here for the next set of questions. Um, go ahead. All right. Uh... Can you all hear me okay? All right. So this is for both uh, Milt and Jack. Uh, is there a lesson from Skylab that you believe that has for, been, you know, forgotten, that should have been learned, that has been forgotten over the years? And um, I'll just take the, the next one. Uh, prior to the launch of the workshop, was there anything that you guys were nervous about or that you thought would be the biggest challenge of Skylab? And uh, <laughs> were you right to be concerned about it? Well, I, I wasn't concerned before the launch about things. You expect the launch to go well. It's got a lot of efforts gone into it, a lot of technical work. And uh, and I don't think anybody ever thought that the uh, micrometeor shield would rip off and, and we'd have the situation we did. But uh, we've shown many times that we can surmount things like that. But I don't believe... Personally, I don't think that uh, we were uh, worried about things, and and not and not all that surprised. Uh, there's, uh, you may be going to ask us later if we thought there was a time when uh, we're going to have to give up on a mission, and I, I would say that's never happened. We don't go into missions thinking that we can't fulfill them. We have many ways that we can do alternate procedures and a lot of real clever people on the ground supporting that that uh, that are able to provide alternates. So um, as Grant said, failure is not an option. So we you can get around explosions, but anything short of that, we worked around many times. 
I don't think there were any surprises either. We were uh, training for this for uh, a couple of years. I did the University of Milt. I hope not. I hope not interrupting Milt. I finished. Did I interrupt you, Milt? Uh, yeah, I was done. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Um, I don't think there were really any big surprises there because we studied this thing for so long in so many places with so many expert people, not only within the government and NASA and our colleagues, but uh, out there were all the contractors that, that worked on this as well. So we had it pretty well covered in terms of expertise and questions and concerns. And I thought that when we launched, we were very well prepared. And uh, we were also very well prepared, it turns out, for the anomalies that we occurred that we hadn't expected. So, so we were able to react in real time for those kinds of things for which we never practiced because we had all the experience that we needed for the things that were uh, were on the schedule. And uh, so I thought uh, from a point of view of, of the crew that uh, we never had any questions. Uh, once we uh, saw the uh, problem, we were able we knew we were able to uh, able to fix it because we had such a great preparation, such support from from everywhere in the system. That's fascinating. Thank you. Uh, let's kick it over to David. I think next. All right. So I got called out recently by uh, Rusty Schweikart, and uh, for, for for the audience, if folks don't know who Rusty was, he was a Apollo 9 astronaut, but he was part of the original astronaut team working Skylab, very involved in the development of Skylab. And uh, so he was on Emily's podcast recently, and they were talking about that 10-day period after the launch of Skylab. Things went wrong, everything that had to be done to uh, to get it fixed. And... Uh, and and Rusty's telling the story and he says, you know, there was that book written about Skylab and they totally left my story out. And uh, it's in, in, his, in his defense, it's a fair complaint. I, I will 100 percent own that. You uh, you write a, you know, a 500 and something page book. You can only cram so many stories into it. And, uh, you know, if it had been 600 and something pages, he might have been in there. But uh, for uh, Milton Jack. Um, other, other than Rusty, um, who are some folks whose stories don't get uh, told the way they should? You know, 50 years later, who are the forgotten heroes? Um, tell me a, a story about somebody that maybe deserves more recognition that doesn't get talked about as much as they should. It, it, that's very hard to do. Uh, people work for a long time. Um uh, a guy that always comes to my mind is Craig Starosinich. He was an ecom on Skylab. He was on my team. And the ecom is a guy that looks at the power supplies and, and the electrical systems. And after we launched and had to go into the standby wait mode, we had to fly in a real strange orbit that was uh, as good as it could be for power and as good as it could be for thermal. Because if we went to the place that was good for getting the solar radiation, uh, it made it, uh, Skylab too hot. And if we went to the place where it cooled down, um, we, uh, we couldn't get enough power to the solar arrays. So we were, uh, in a strange attitude that was not stable at all. And we had to monitor that very carefully. And, and, Craig, as an ecom, was able to tell more about the attitude than maybe the uh, guidance and navigation people. And 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 one night, Craig was saying, "Hey, we're starting to ripple off power supplies here. We're probably in a in a strange attitude." 
And, I mean, we're probably not in the right attitude. We're uh, we're not stable, and we are about to fall off this knife edge. And so we uh, uh, we had to uh, crank up the attitude control system and and restabilize the space the Skylab. Um, which uh, we did, and I don't think very many people even knew that that happened. And uh, and I thought Craig was one example of a guy going beyond his uh, what you might expect from from his uh, background, uh, and and was able to uh, keep us from getting into a, a serious situation. So he his name is always it plus the fact that Starcinich is not exactly. Come off, flow off your tongue real easy either. But anyway, he was a real good technical guy and a nice man too. One of the personnel stories that I think of, um, I uh, every everybody I thought during the Skylab preparation excelled, um, whether in flight control or or mechanics or whoever they were. We uh, had great support from everybody, I and mean, we had great confidence in what they were. Doing and the, and the fact that they're they're going to perform well while we're in space, but there's one story that uh, I comes out that is somewhat humorous, and I'll relate it here. Uh, in the early days uh, at the Johnson Space Center, we didn't have much in the way of neutrobuoyancy training. Uh, in fact, uh, we had one small uh, pool we could put a command module in and learn how to get out of it when it was upside down. And uh, then we got a, a larger uh, pool to uh, work in as well, but nothing like we got now. Uh, and at the at the Johnson Space Center, we uh, we uh, were a little shorthanded on uh, neutral buoyancy training, so we would uh, go over to uh, uh, Huntsville to do some of that. Werner von Braun over there had always wanted to get more astronauts come living in in, uh, in Huntsville. And so perhaps uh, he was trying to tempt us by making this huge water tank. You get almost all the whole Skylab in. Hopefully, uh, astronauts can come there and live and train in it. Uh, unfortunately for him, we uh, decided we would just fly there with our T-38s and train in it for a few days and go back home. And uh, so that's what we did. We had a huge uh, buoyancy tank trainer for the Skylab in Huntsville, and that's what we did. Often, uh, however, at noon noon hours, Werner uh, von Braun would invite us up to his office for lunch with a couple of his comrades and, uh, from Germany. And uh, so while we were there, we got to know him quite well, and uh, he was very interested in how our training was going and so forth. And um, he wanted to talk about that. But uh, we uh, wanted to uh, change the discussion, and we like to talk to him about uh, more about his uh, life and uh, in in uh, in, uh, in Germany, and so uh, while they were asking questions about Skylab, we were asking questions about uh, Mundi and the V two rockets, and uh, then we thought that was very interesting. But we never got a chance to uh, live permanently in Huntsville, but we did uh, remember him as being one of the greats in the Skylab program. That's about the end of the story, or as far as I'm concerned. I, everybody I thought in, the, in the, the Johnson Space Center, all through NASA, wherever it was, and we trained at several centers for several reasons, and in all our relative contractors as well, they were also very supportive. And uh, I don't think there was any uh, anything uh, stone on left unturned 
and uh, all of our friends uh, were were um, uh, thought of as friends there, not only professionally but as personally as well. And I think that that theme kind of opens up for one of the questions that we're going to ask here next is just the effort from everyone that was involved. I don't know if Emily or David, if you want to um, ask the next one here. Yeah, um, for Jack in particular, uh, this year we'll see a NASA astronaut cross the uh, one continuous year in space mark for the first time. Uh, would you want to? Would you wanted to have stayed in orbit for a full year, and what would an ideal duration have been given? You know, if you'd if you'd had a say in it. <laughs> that for me. Yes. Well, we uh, we see we stayed for uh, two months, and uh, we um, actually at the time we were. Um, staying for two months. The third flight was also scheduled for about two months, 56 days. They were, they were scheduled at the first month, 28 days, and then two 56 days. So uh, when we left, the whole Skylab was configured for that. It was not configured for a longer mission than two 56 days. So uh, we uh, got to the point of about um, oh, uh, 45 days or so on our mission. And we thought about the fact that the next mission was going to be only 56 days. So we thought we would go for a record. And so we made the request to stay for uh, oh, a few more weeks after 56 days so that we could uh, be the longest days in space. And um, and I was uh, thought about underground, but not very thoroughly, I think. <coughs> Excuse me. So uh, we were prepared to stay that long and wanted to. We would have been uh, well supplied as far as we could be concerned. But um, uh, after we there, uh, after we were there for another uh, week or two, we were told that we were going to come back after 56 days. So uh, we lost that request to be stay, staying the longest flight. But we were ready to stay for three day, three months if necessary. So we were uh, sad that we were turned down, but when we finally came home, we were satisfied. We also uh, done all, we had a, a successful mission. We accomplished all our achieved all our goals, and we're very uh, satisfied with that. Uh, but we could have stayed longer, and we wanted to just so we could be the longest. But uh, that was uh, eclipsed by our our buddies on the third flight, and and uh, done very well by them. Okay. Jack, you would have run out of sugar cookies if you had to go that long a mission. He was our champion sugar cookie eater. Oh, and, uh, well, and, well, I tried to keep that. on the schedule and they use everything else that was necessary, and they were really necessary. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've still got some of those sugar cookies downstairs in the hall of space, but I don't know if I'd want to eat those at this point. So um, the next question is for Milt. Uh, so Skylab, uh, as as many of us know, suffered some in, uh, really significant injuries during its launch. So what was the mood like in the Moker during that time? And did you and your th team think, you know, the space station could be salvaged? 
Yeah, that's an interesting term you use, injuries. I read that, and I, I, I don't think I've ever seen that in a space flight before that wasn't applied to a crew, but I mean, personally. But no, we don't think that way. When uh, things happen, we we assume that we can fix them, and we all we do. And uh, and so uh, nobody ever thought, I don't think, that we couldn't get around whatever the problem was, even uh, the, uh, the the change in the in the power supply by losing part of the, uh, the Skylab uh, the solar cells wing the wing. So it we just we just don't think that way, and nobody ever said that. And then David's got a follow-up question on that for Jack. So a few weeks before the uh, before the launch of Skylab, there was a meeting at Marshall Space Flight Center where they talked about what do we do if something goes wrong on the outside of the workshop? They met for a while. They talked about it. They finally decided <clears throat> there's no contingency plan. If something goes wrong on the outside of the workshop, there's nothing you can do about it. But that's okay because there's really nothing out there that could break. Like we feel that the odds of something going wrong on the outside of the workshop are low enough that we feel okay that there's no contingency plan. Um, Skylab was designed for spacewalks, but it was designed for spacewalks up to the top of the telescope and back. There were handholds, rails, everything to get you from point A to point B, but nothing if you wanted to get to point C or point D. So, uh, so that meeting where they said, uh, we feel like there's nothing that could go wrong with sort of the, uh, you know, God himself could not sink this ship moment for, uh, for the Skylab program. They launched Skylab. Sure enough, during ascent, something goes wrong on the outside of the, uh, the workshop. And so, uh, so this thing that they had just had a meeting to decide that there was no way on earth an astronaut could do, they decided we're going to make the astronauts do it anyway. So, uh, uh, the first crew had to do a spacewalk to the outside of the uh, to fix something on the outside of the workshop to free the uh, the solar array panels. Um, second crew, Jack's crew, had to do a spacewalk to install a new sun shield on the outside of the workshop. So, uh, so Jack, tell us about what it was like going on an EVA, going on a spacewalk to uh, to fix Skylab in a way that Skylab was kind of aggressively designed for you to not be able to do. Well, we uh, train for every um, possible emergency, I guess. And uh, we had trained underwater, of course, uh, a lot. And uh, we didn't think there was probably anything we couldn't do as long as we uh, knew what to do. We had the equipment. And so we um, we knew beforehand that we were going to have to put this uh, shade over the parasol. And uh, that, of course, was uh, invented in the Marshall Space Flight Center. And we went over there in water, their water tank. and and uh, practice for that. And that seemed like uh, to be a doable thing. And um, there were uh, a couple of things that were a little different. We had to bring it, take along some foot restraints, of course, to install uh, on the outside. And uh, then we had this uh, big bag full of, uh, of, of a covering, which was uh, fabricated out of several pieces and, and, uh, and uh, fastened together uh, with some kind of uh, adhesive put in a bag, and uh, so I took those out um, to do that job, and I um, had this uh, big bag of, of, of material at my feet, and Owen stood down uh, by the airlock and put together these flagpoles, and these flagpoles was made out of 11 five-foot pieces and had a rope on it, and so as the, the uh, pole got longer, he, he is in, 
uh, slide it out to me, and I finally got to the end of it. And so here I am out on the end of this Skylab with this uh, 11, uh, this uh, 55 foot pole, very thin, but uh, you could think it's a long, long fishing pole of what it seemed like. Put those two in my uh, in a stri- uh, st- structure by my uh, feet, and then I got this uh, big bag out of the, this big shade out of the bag. And I had to unfold it. It was uh, all folded up neatly. You can see the folds as you look at the picture, even uh, from uh, months later in the, in the pictures. And so I uh, unfolded this thing, and it got to be bigger and bigger. And um, I hooked the uh, the uh, ends of it to the flag poles. I started to run them up the pole. And as I looked at, I couldn't see up, but I could see in front of me. But I noticed in front of me the poles were becoming, were getting, instead of in a V, they were bringing themselves together. And so something was wrong. So I looked up, and here's this big wad of stuff. All of the um, pieces that had been glued together, the, uh, the one that was packed, the adhesive had not cured, fully cured. And so the uh, folds were stuck together. So I had to bring this bag, bag, big fold of, of material back over my head and separate it all out hand by hand, all of those folds to make sure they were not glued together. And then I had to somehow hook it together again to run it up the pole. And so I, I was able to do that. And then I had to also on the corners next to me Somehow we had to square this thing up. So there were big long lanyards that I had to take to uh, float back to the corners of the uh, Apollo telescope mount and hook them up and square this thing up. And then they laid it down over the top of the parasol and fastened it. And pictures have been taken of it later. Is in fact, the uh, picture of the skylight that we saw on the program coming up showed these creases and it showed that it had turned brown in the sunlight except for a very narrow area that remained white. That's apparently a place that I had forgotten or was I didn't get separated and didn't see as much uh, sunshine, and so it remained white. But uh, that end of story that worked very well. It kept us cool uh, for all of our mission and all the rest of the third mission as well. One other uh, um, uh, EVA that we did that's not been talked about, but which was very uh, unplanned, was we had to put out a rate gyro six pack, or uh, not the big gyros, but the small rate gyros came in a small package, had to be uh, replaced. And so they sent up a replacement um, um, canister full of those about the size of a little bread box, I guess you might say, and had to be hooked on the outside or inside, but it had to be hooked up uh, electrically with uh, cables to uh, some electrical, um, uh, electrical spots on the long side of the Skyland. And this had never been planned. So there was a long cable about, uh, I think it was about 26 feet long. It was in a V fashion. It had an extension out about uh, halfway down, about about 10 feet or so. And so I had to find the uh, junction box on the launch on the side of the Skylab. There was no handholds, no feet restraints, just a a box with about uh, eight cannon plugs in it that I could not release on my hand, but they knew that I was going to have to do this. So they made me a special set of pliers that I could unscrew those uh, those uh, <clears throat> two connectors that I had to make. 
And so I was able to do that somehow by wedging myself in there uh, between the spacecraft and this box and get that job done. But uh, that also then uh, cured the rate gyro six-pack problem. So that was one of the EVAs that was less heralded, but was less well prepared for as well. And um, so we got to the point where we thought there was nothing we could not do. And there was nothing that we could not do in the future if we had to. So we were very optimistic all the time we were up there. And uh, doing a spacewalk was just uh, amazing. You know, when you're inside the spacecraft, you watch the world go by. And you go around the world every hour and a half. Uh, our, uh, our track was over the ground uh, at 50 degrees north latitude and 50 degrees south latitude. So we can cover with our Earth looking instruments the northern border of the United States. And so um, we never got tired of looking out the window at, uh, at, the, at, the, um, at the world go by. And if you were really looking ahead, you could save your freeze-dried strawberries from breakfast in the morning and uh, unfreeze them at night and thaw them out and uh, have an ice cream Sunday and looking out the, the window and watch the world go by. But um, when we were watching the world go by from the inside, it was kind of like being in a, in a railroad car. You could see everything go by quite quickly, but you didn't you see a whole lot of it. And when you're outside doing a spacewalk, it was just like being on top of the world, uh, being on the front end of the locomotive and steaming down the track because you could see 360 degrees for five, six, 800 miles. And it was just like being on the front end of the locomotive. I remember being out on the spacewalk one that time, and uh, I was at the end of the uh, tether about 55 feet out there, and I was on the ATM, hanging on by one foot, getting my job done, and uh, we went into the darkness, and the troops down below did not turn on the, on the lights uh, outside, and so here I'm in uh, total darkness almost, and I'm somewhere over the Pacific, so there's no light on the ground. And uh, all around, there was, uh, see a myriad of stars. You can see about five times as many stars uh, at night out there because there's no interference with atmosphere and the stars don't twinkle. Here I'm on this thing going around the world at 18,000 miles an hour and um, hanging on by one foot. And it's just me and the, me and the stars and God out there in the blackness. That's a, a feeling that I didn't, I never got rid of. And one of the most exciting uh, experiences and memory, memorial experiences that I could have. And so I think probably uh, doing spacewalks was one of those kinds of things that we enjoyed the most. And we did see a lot of the world because uh, we were at these uh, high inclination orbits. And every time we went around the world, we were going or a different ground track and seeing the world from their perspective every time we went and identifying places we knew and some we didn't. But it was that you could see the the uh, the uh, you could see the earth very easily. Of course, we could see the um, the tans of the deserts and the uh, the um, you know mountains and the uh, oceans, you know, the blues of the oceans and the white of the skies and the clouds and the and the uh, the beauty of the earth. And I just never got uh, tired of uh, looking out as, as we went around the world and seeing it in, in a way that we could. So um, Skylab performed a lot of uh, experiments, many of his, his experiments in three different areas, uh, medical, 
uh, solar physics, and of course, Earth observation. So what is the legacy of the, you know, you've discussed looking down at Earth during your EVAs, but what is the legacy of the Earth observations uh, performed during Skylab? And, and how did they contribute to ongoing environmental science, such as Landsat and things like that? Is that for me? And this is for Jack. Yeah, for Jack. Yeah, I, it, uh, it was not only a, a great experience to see the Earth uh, visually, and uh, we never got tired of looking out the window and took every opportunity we could. Uh, the uh, crew, crews that are up there now have this cupola, and uh, it's like being uh, in the control station of an airport. You see everywhere. And I claim that as my idea for uh, addition to the uh, proposal, as a matter of fact. And I, nobody heard, I've never heard anybody refute the claim that the gondola has uh, used uh, the cupola now uh, as a result of our experiences from watching the Earth from Skylab and the need to uh, see in every direction. And um, tell me the question you asked me again. I, I lost track of it. Well, what were the contributions to the Earth resources? Yeah. Yeah, so we had uh, Earth resources experiments. We had six, six different kinds of Earth-looking experiments. And uh, one thing you need to know, of course, is we had to upset the uh, the uh, uh, the orientation of the spacecraft in order to uh, do this because we wanted the solar panels to be looking at the sun in uh, every orbit so we could have our electricity available. We had no batteries. We um, were depending on the sun for all of our electricity, and we could uh, go. Uh, only three orbits around the Earth without looking at the sun before we had to look at the sun again to get our electricity back. So all of our Earth-looking experiments uh, interrupted that solar uh, viewing, and uh, we were uh, pointed at the Earth uh, with our um, uh, low, lower-looking axis going around in what you might think of as an outside loop looking at, at the uh, Earth below. And uh, I related about how we looked at it visually and what we saw and how we appreciated that by our Six experiments uh, were all trained at looking for certain kinds of things on the Earth. And we were uh, trying to understand the Earth better uh, agriculturally as well as uh, physically in other ways. And so um, we had, um, I think, about uh, 30 different um, sites to view, whether they were deserts or mountains or oceans or cloud formations. Uh, we were using our instruments on board to uh, look at them very carefully. And we all of our sites were located in, uh, in the United States or other friendly territories. We were forbidden to uh, look at any sites in China or Russia. And uh, later on, as the uh, program loosened up, uh, we uh, were uh, able, after the Apollo uh, Soyuz mission, why uh, we were unfettered in what we could look at going around the world. and we. Uh, looked at it visually, uh, looked at it, uh, looked at it uh, visually in different ways. Anyhow, the Earth Resource Experiments had six different kind of telescopes or or receivers to uh, be turned on and off at certain points over the ground, and they, these were very well controlled points. Had to do with agriculture, or forestry, or freshwater, or mountainous, or uh, other kinds of uh, important uh, ground resources. And so uh, we uh, had about um, 50 sites, it seems like to me, as I recall, maybe it was 30, something like that, that we had to be able to identify 
uh, before we flew over to them and start, turned on our instruments. And so um, um, they were located all over. So one weekend I took a T-38 and flew over all of them of trying to locate them with the eye, see what they were near so that we could uh, have some uh, precursors as we approached them with our telescopes looking forward uh, in space. And uh, as we went over them, then we would lock onto them and take the data. And uh, then uh, as we went over them, of course, we would have to uh, uh, turn them off and uh, look for the next site. And we were given a program as to what to uh, look for on the certain days that we dedicated to these Earth Resources Experiment Package or EREP uh, packages. And um, we came back with a lot of good data. Uh, and uh, and uh, agriculture, for example, we were looking for uh, crop uh, development. We were looking to, to see what we could tell what what the status of the uh, crop formation was or vegetation it was. We could tell if it needed more water, if it was dry, if it was, if it was spoiled. We could tell you what kind of crop it was and what its potential yield was going to be whether it was something like you know, wheat or potatoes or cotton or something like that, or whether we're looking at trees, we could need to remember which was a, a deciduous leaf uh, falling tree or one of which was coniferous and, grand, and uh, evergreen. We could tell you their status of growth and their health and their, uh, and, uh, and their status of a water supply. So we were able to do the kinds of things a uh, agricultural control agent might do on the ground. And, at the same time that we were looking at these sites from space, we had agricultural agents looking on the ground, looking for the same things we were looking for to determine whether or not our experiments, um, our telescopes were going to be good enough to substitute for all of that groundwork that was done. And it turned out in the long run, as I recall, that uh, now most of your agricultural types of um, uh, information that you get from your agricultural department, much of it comes from our telescopic uh, um, or our, our uh, space-borne um, uh, microscopic and uh, uh, telescopic information. So I think that our Earth Resources Experiment Package was, uh, equipment uh, worked out very reliably. The procedure that we had to do them worked out good. And the, uh, the ground sites that we were able to find were uh, all uh, very, very efficient. And so we, I think we contributed greatly to the, the ground management of, of our natural resources. Thank you. I think we're going to do one more question each for Emily and David. So uh, whoever wants to go next. All right. So the next question is for Milt. Um, Skylab 4 had workflow situations that that ended up resulting in a long time myth about a, a strike or a mutiny occurring during that mission. So please tell us what really happened and how the crew successfully fulfilled their mission. Well, well, it was a success. The, the problem was we did not appreciate the difference between uh, the ground control people's experience and the crew's experience. We had, uh, Jack just told you he had 56 days and we worked with another crew for 28 days. So the, the ground team was really, you might say in the peak of condition. And, and the, uh, as you know, uh, 
but probably don't appreciate people like myself and Noah Flom like that. Um, when you first get up into uh, space, you, you have a period of acclimation that you have to go, your body has to go through, and uh, that varies with different people. I was looking back at some of the comments that uh, the Skylab 4 crew had made, and apparently uh, Ed Gibson, for some reason, had almost no problem uh, getting acclimated, and uh, and and Bill Pogue had quite a bit, and, and Jerry Carr was somewhere in the middle. And that's typical of crews. And but what we and and if you go back and look at Apollo eight, for example, eight, uh, Borman had a hard time um, adjusting to to uh, zero gravity. So we we really did not take that uh, enough uh, into into consideration enough when we were talking about what we were going to do, um, and we. Unfortunately, the ground team kind of picked up where we had been when when Jack's crew uh, left the spacecraft and came home, and and we started from there when we should have given the crew uh, a time to get acclimated. The Apollo uh, Skylab four crew more time to get acclimated, and uh, and and when you're flying an airplane, you want to feel like you're ahead of the of the machine. Um, for a lot of people, uh, it, it, it requires a flight or two to do that. And uh, if if you don't fly in a, in, in a, in a, with a often enough, uh, you the first time you get back in it, you you feel like you're not not sure of things. And after one flight, maybe or two, you 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 get ahead of the situation and you feel a lot more comfortable. And we did not give them. Uh, the amount of time that they needed to get up to that comfort thing. By the time the the uh, flight was over, uh, you know they were doing stuff that uh, along the same kind of way that that Jack's team did. So uh, that was a problem, and and it and it was outlawed for not really uh, anticipating this, and and of course. Uh, no red-blooded astronaut is going to admit that he can't do something. So the crew were reluctant to tell us this situation. They did. They did uh, um, talk to Deke about it, and and we finally uh, gave them some more time, and, and things worked out. But there was uh, there was no mutiny as such, and and by the time the mission was over. Uh, we had a, another ton of data. All right, thank you. So for the audience, you know, I want y'all to take a second to, uh, to to think about what life must have been for poor Milt, having to uh, having well, to have two or, words on ad adaptation. Oh yeah, certainly. Yeah, let me say that Milt covered it quite well. Uh, by the way, Milt, um, 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 I just got back last night. That's why I'm so uh, late here. Uh, from um, Seattle and Boeing, and uh, we had a uh, Skylab uh, rendezvous out there, and uh, the uh, lead man on that, of course, was um, was Mel Hutchinson, and he wanted me, um, or was Hutchinson, he, he wanted me to uh, pass along his best respects to Milt, uh, because they were you know, people that really held the mission together, 
and uh, it was good to rendezvous and had a uh, Skyland of representations out there at Boeing. Nevertheless, um, uh, the uh, I guess the adaptation to being in Skyland was, was uh, one of those things that it was a concern to begin with. And uh, as we went up on our second mission, we uh, felt a little slowed down the first uh, few days, but we got it back together uh, very quickly, I thought. And um, by the time we had come to six days, was well, on the sixth day we did the first EVA uh, to put that uh, shroud sh uh, over the uh, parasol. Seems like it was anyway. We uh, adapted being in zero gravity very quickly. Uh, after the first uh, few days of, um, of adaptation. And uh, in fact, we got very efficient. And it turns out that we started asking for more more work to do. And uh, uh, as I recall, um, uh, we uh, ended up uh, uh, being uh, all, uh, more than 100% coverage of all of the work that we are uh, um, planning to do. And that's actually where uh, the Earth Observations Program uh, was developed. And uh, we uh, asked for more work to do. And one of those jobs that we got to do was look at Earth observations that were uh, cranked up from the ground in real time. And so uh, we we did that. And that was added to the uh, future flights, uh, not only through Skylab, into the uh, International Space Station as well. And so that was, we ended up, I believe, as being 125 or 50% greater work uh, than we had anticipated. And uh, we got very, uh, very well adapted very quickly. And um, we, we wake up in the morning and get this uh, ticker tape uh, improvement to our additions to our, uh, our um, Skylab. We had a teleprinter that we could use to uh, update overnight or plan for the day. Sometimes the thing was 20 feet long, and I had to go and cut it up into pieces and hand every guy his part of it, and we'd go over that at breakfast and get to work. So we got all of our jobs done very quickly, very efficiently, and it was a result of a good coordination between the ground and the crew to make those kinds of things happen. Lots of people were involved in, in that kind of coordination, and I think we uh, gave the the last crew a little bit of disadvantage by being uh, so efficient ourselves by the time we finished. But if we were to do it over again, I guess we'd uh, do it at best the same way. Uh, and the fact that we asked for um, as extended duration uh, was, I guess, up to the realization that we had very much accomplished our goals. And one of the last things, though, I did that we uh, did have last three days without any particular great things to do on the flight plan. And after 56 days, we were able to stay for three more before we went over, be over the, the landing site. So we came up with a few uh, stunts that we might do that would help the uh, next crew um, be feel at home when they got there. So I found their clothes. We all had uh, overcoats um, and uh, T-shirts and trousers, all the same color, so forth. Uh, we didn't have any laundry up there, so we had each change um, outer clothing, uh, clothing, inner clothing every day, but outer clothing every every two weeks. So I found their clothes, and I stuffed them full of uh, um, trash bags, and I relocated them different places in the spacecraft so they'd feel there was company when they got there. And I put the uh, first guy on the treadmill, and the other guy put him in the 
lower body negative pressure device. And the third guy, I wasn't allowed by NASA to tell him where I uh, put him in the, uh, in the, what, what, what do they call that? Oh, waste, waste management compartment. But that's where they found the uh, third guy uh, passing uh, securely for the uh, safety belt. And uh, so I, well, I'm hoping they felt as though they had the company they record, they, you know, they, they were, uh, they were, 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 um, were ready to come and um, get to work with the crowd that was up there when they arrived. Never lose your sense of humor. <laughs> I think that would have freaked anybody right. out. So, so hey, did, you notice, did you notice, he said, see, we had worked with the, the crew on uh, Skylab 3 and, and, and got it to one, um, one pace. And so all this uh, trouble with Skylab 4 was was uh, Jack's fault because they were so efficient. But by the time Jerry and his crew had got to a few days into the thing, uh, when we gave them some time to catch up while they, they got back to where they were, uh, they did the same efficient job. But it, we just didn't allow them enough time to get started. And I would like to say something about Skylab. Uh, Skylab is probably maybe my favorite program. And the reason was because we delivered a product. When we were doing Apollo, we were just going up there to the moon and landing and, and getting a few samples and coming back. And that was the, the, the mission. And uh, it, in a sense, uh, we didn't want the scientific people or anybody else uh, bothering us. And we just wanted to get up there and successfully land and successfully come back. But Skylab, we contracted to deliver a product. We had these uh, uh, four different areas that they've been talking about. We had the medical experiments. We had the, uh, um, the, the uh, investigations of uh, of the sun uh, on the ATM Apollo telescope mount. We had the earth resources and, and we had a miscellaneous. And we had divided the, the hours we had into several chunks, four different chunks, had a, a science czar that, that had within a discipline, say, take a Apollo telescope. Uh, he uh, everybody there wanted their experiment to have all the time because they were interested in getting to be Nobel Prize winners. And and, and the science czar was able to uh, put priorities on that and given those why. Then we, uh, at, on the ground uh, uh, team, were able to, to uh, devise a plan where we could meet all those. And so... Uh, and I call that a product. And I think that that was one of the things about the Skylab that appealed to me was that, that we made a contract to, to take data and deliver data. And we did that for X number of months. So uh, I, I, I like what we accomplished in Skylab very much. Well, it's good to be talking to my neighbor and friends with uh, for so many years as well. Good to talk to my friends and, uh, and uh, from Friendswood. And I uh, also uh, recently, just uh, last night, day before, a few days, I was with um, um, our buddy out in the uh, West Coast, and Ed Gibson was uh, with me out there as well. 
And uh, so we uh, were able to ruminate quite a bit about uh, the second and third uh, flights. And uh, um, uh, Ed reminded me that uh, when they got up there, they didn't have enough food. So they had to take uh, some extra kind of rations along in order to survive for for three months instead of just two. And so uh, he asked me to uh, pass his greetings along to you. As, uh, and um, our, we had a good reunion up in, in, in um, Seattle uh, the last few days. And it's good to rendezvous with you on television today. And not only because we work together, but we live near each other back here in Friendswood. One other, uh, I had some other stories in mind. I guess I, I couldn't remember them, but um, I probably should. But uh, if we uh, get a chance to chat again, uh, perhaps we'll come with some even better and inter more interesting stories. Uh, but um, uh, Ed was uh, talking about the fact that their rations were a whole lot different than ours. They had they had these bars they had to take along in order to stay longer. And um, they somehow survived on that extra job. Well, you're welcome here anytime. I, speaking for myself, but um, we've got uh, one more real quick question from David, and then we're going to open it up to a lightning round uh, for Q&A from the audience and also via Zoom as well. Um, so, David, go ahead. So first, I got to point out that the story that Jack's not telling all about the clothes at the end of the mission, they uh, he talked about taking the outer clothes and stuffing them for the third crew. But uh, they get to day fifty six. They are they are out of underwear, right? Because they only have enough for uh, for their mission. So uh, they realize the third crew has a whole supply of untouched underwear up there. So they uh, they call down to, to mission control, who asks for permission to uh, to get a change of underwear. Mission control radios back up, says we got some good news and some bad news. The uh, the good news is you're approved for a change of underwear. The bad news is Jack, you change with Owen. Owen change you change with Al. How do you change with Jack? <laughs> but, yeah, that's one of the better stories. I'm glad you brought it up. <laughs> but uh, I wanted to I wanted to follow up a little bit on, on something Milt was talking about just then. Um, yeah, poor old Milt. I mean, before they let him do Skylab, he had to suffer through several boring moon landings before they uh, before they let him do the fun stuff. Um, but, you know, I mean, the, the paradigm of a moon landing, you know, in mission control, there are things most days that are life and death for the crew, right? I mean, the launch is a big day. Translunar injection is a big day. Lunar orbit injection is a big day. Uh, landing on the moon is a big day. Leaving the moon is a big day. Skylab, the reality is once you're up there, you know, day 42 may not be terribly different from uh, from day 28. So uh, so from a flight control perspective, kind of what were the uh, what were the big days for a uh, Skylab mission? And what were some of your favorite missions from a flight control perspective? Well, I didn't pick a one mission over another, but I guess big days would be uh, from thinking about uh, packing and entry, obviously, but would be the EVA days, and uh, and and that was uh, different. But you're right; one day is very much like another, but uh, they're all interesting. And then, uh, Michelle, we've got some questions via Zoom, I think. In one Hello. Here, there we go. 
All right. Um, we have a lot of questions from Zoom. We're um, going to take just a couple of them. What was the general morale feeling among the astronauts and flight controllers as the program transitioned from lunar exploration to space station science? That could be for either of you. Well, I, I guess I just explained what I thought about it because, like I say, we were we were data gatherers and uh, and and we were delivering a product which was data in these four different areas, and we we delivered data, tons of it. I, I sometimes wonder if they really looked at all of it yet, but probably they have. <laughs> Well, we had one guy in our flight that did it both. You know, we had Alan Bean went to the moon, second second flight to the moon, and uh, otherwise, um, um, Owen and I were rookies, so we didn't have the overlap. But uh, we we wished we had the opportunity to go to the moon. Thought we might, uh, but they canceled the last three flights. Uh, but we were uh, very well uh, occupied during that time, and, and with. Um, I worked on the lunar rover before we went and so forth, but we uh, had uh, responsibilities that uh, could have pertained to the moon, but we never got there. But uh, once we got into space and had some 60 experiments to do, we were very busy. We, we talked about the Earth and the medical and the solar experiments, but we had student experiments and we had a lot of mechanical type experiments that we had to do in materials processing and so forth. So we were very busy people up there doing things that never been been done before, and even though um, I wished I'd had a chance to go to the moon, I had um, a lot of experience going on. I had a lot of uh, work on the lunar module test and checkout for the, the uh, first two uh, uh, flights of the, the lunar module. And in fact, I think I have about five or hundred or six hundred hours in the lunar module during test and checkout. That would have been very valuable. But uh, I was uh, uh, really uh, privileged to be able to go on the Skylab. And uh, Ed Gibson, I was with him in, in Seattle over the weekend last night and the last couple of days, and he asked me to send his regards to everybody during the student. He didn't have the, he didn't have a chance to be involved. So Ed's greetings come to, to you from me. Awesome. Thank you. We have one more question we'll take from Zoom. By the way, we have a lot of people on Zoom from, we have people from Germany, Alabama, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas. Okay, go on and on. Um, this question is for Milt. When sitting at the console in the Moker, were there any functions of the spacecraft cluster that were controlled directly from the console or were the consoles mostly for information? Uh well, you don't mean my console, I don't think, but yes, they were. We uh, we operated a uh, uh, Skylab unmanned for the period of time between flights, between Apollo 2 and 3 and 3 and 4. And then after the crew left, uh, we operated it unmanned for uh, several months before it finally uh, uh, it re-entered. So uh, there were controls you couldn't do everything, uh, but you could look at the uh, and to do the solar observations for sure. And uh, so that, was, as Jack said earlier, uh, the uh, 
it was designed really to look at the sun. And so uh, it liked that attitude and you could get power, uh, the maximum power and, and all of that. So uh, it was easy to do that part. We There were a lot of things we could not do because we didn't have people there to work on. But but they could operate. We could operate it not, not as controlled as the space station is and, and things these days. But but we did. I think we could be reminded too that uh, there were possibilities that the Skylab was going to be used again, and so it was maintained uh, from the ground up uh, in orbit for a long, long time. And uh, Fred Hayes and I were assigned to the third crew of the space shuttle to uh, go and rescue it, and we worked on that for about a year. Um, uh, Fred took the responsibility to get all the equipment on the sky on the uh, space shuttle, like rendezvous radars and all those kinds of things, so that we could uh, find it. And I was uh, assigned to uh, help make sure that the the uh, rendezvous vehicle that was going to be docked with it was going to be flyable. It was about the size of a dump uh, truck, I guess you might say, that we were going to launch out of the cargo bay, and it had uh, the television on it. It had uh, thrusters on it and, and uh, able to control it where the hand controller from inside the shuttle and was going to rendezvous with the Skylab. We were going to offset about 2,000 feet from it, uh, bounce this package out of the you know, back of the space shuttle, and I was going to fly it remotely with the hand controllers and dock it with the space uh, with the Skylab just like it would have done with a with land module, and then either uh, uh, fire the engines on it to uh, get it to uh, go higher and last longer and use again or over a control spot so it would land in the ocean in a safe place. And uh, so uh, we uh, were prepared to do that. But unfortunately, the uh, shuttle schedule didn't lead up with the Skylab schedule. And we were called off and the uh, ground took control of the Skylab. We were able to uh, put most of it into the Indian Ocean and a little bit of it into um, Western Australia. Um, it didn't hurt anybody, but uh, every once in a while, uh, pieces of what would end up in America wanted to be autographed by, by the farmers who uh, owned the, uh, the parts of the spacecraft that made it into Australia. But uh, the, the Skylab was intended to be used for a longer period of time, and unfortunately, we weren't, weren't ready with the space shuttle in order to get up there. and. Um, Every day when we get up in the morning, we'd look at the position of the, the, uh, the Skylab and the preparation of the space shuttle. And it turned out that the two didn't match. And uh, one morning I got up, went to the office, and uh, Fredo said, uh, hey, Jack, I uh, got news for you. Uh, I'm uh, decided uh, to uh, leave the space program here and go uh, and fly uh, and then work with the Grumman Aerospace. And uh, so I was without a commander, and so I went over to see the folks in the office and said I needed someone to help me to um, get on with STS-3. And so I was put in command of STS-3 and brought Gordon Fullerton along. We eventually flew, uh, and the Skylab came in, landed in the water, and later on, Gordon and I flew a very successful eight-day space shuttle mission in STS-3. But um, the uh, Skylab um, idea and Flight of Skylab didn't go away in the astronaut office even after the last mission. We watched it for a long time, hoping to get there and see it again ourselves, but we're disappointed we had a change. 
Okay. I'm finished. Are you? Hi, my name is April Ware. I don't think the microphone's on. Hold on one second. <laughs> Or this one's yeah. Try that. Here you go, April. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Um, like I said, my name is April West. I'm from here in Hutchison. Um, my question is, what was your? This is for both of you. What was your favorite experiment to do up in the Sky Lab? Yeah. That for me. Sure. Go ahead, Jack. Favorite experiment? Well, I have to disappoint everybody, I guess, and make uh, uh, fifty-nine people unhappy and one happy. <laughs> I can't. I mean, I all, all of uh, the experiments were my favorite experiments. I because I was interested in making progress <clears throat> and getting the experiment. The uh, the people needed to go on the ground to uh, further their careers. But one of the interesting ones that um, that uh, got a lot of publicity, I guess, and was. Uh, uh, and kind of, um, oh, everybody could refer to it, uh, was the spider. And this was with the um, with the student experiment, and we had the spider. And, um, and the uh, spider was going to come and live in space, and the, uh, it was a certain kind of spider that would uh, make a web and destroy it every day and make a new one. And it would do so by floating, uh, of course, in the in the uh, in the breeze or by gravity, floating somewhere else to spin its web. And so, uh, Arabella was the name of the spider. And uh, Arabella had a, a small box about uh, over oh, a foot and a half square and about uh, four inches deep. And it was a metal box, except the front part was uh, two uh, glass doors, uh, which could open. And we could put Arabella in there and, uh, and put her uh, food supply in there every day as we needed to and uh, and without breaking her web and so forth. And so, you know, she came in a little container about the size of a shotgun shell, I guess you might say. And um, uh, Owen Gary was going to be the lead on this because he's a scientist on board. So Owen went to get the uh, spider out of the command module. And uh, Arabella's in there, and uh, we had a backup, by the way, also to begin with. I can't remember her name, but she wasn't used. And uh, he got this uh, cartridge out, and then uh, and I took the cap off, and out floats Arabella. And uh, her, her, her legs are going around. She's just floating, not knowing where to go, but she's obviously alive. So I didn't, we didn't know if she bit or not, but we didn't want to get her grab a hold of her. So... Uh, Owen called me over, and we, we, with our hands, we kind of uh, guided her over by uh, uh, pushing her one a little one way, and then the other, and finally getting her in the box and closing the doors. And then she's floating around inside, and uh, nothing to hold on to, nothing. So she's there to give her something she can eat from. And so we check her out, and the next morning, and she's uh, still uh, there, floating a little bit, but uh, she finally lands a corner. Now, she's supposed to spin a web every day, but she can't do it. So eventually, however, uh, she's able to uh, fly, uh, float herself from one corner to another. 
and uh, make a corner, uh, a little web in the corner, and destroy it every day. And then she was able to make four webs, one in each corner. And then she was able to make a web that connected those four webs. It wasn't a perfect web like she made on the ground, but then she made the web. And so that was probably one of the most uh, human, human interest type of experiments we had. If we tried to call out any of the others, we'd irritate about 58 other people. So I guess it's best to say all the experiments were our favorites, and we uh, got them all done. And we got them done so rapidly that we were given more to do. And so um, that, uh, that gave the last group a lot of extra work to do as well. But we thought that the experimental groups that we worked with, Medical Earth, um, 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 Sun, whoever they were, the other, uh, we almost had about 60 experiments and just not to 30 that you talked about in those three areas, but lots of others as well, flying the uh, backpacks and um, oh, just a host of them. Uh, of, uh, of, um, of the mechanical type experiments we had to do as well. So we thought we were very well um, prepared, that we had very good experimenters, very good experiments to do. And that's why we were able to get so much done because we had to get some great preparation from the ground to begin with. And so we really laid the work on the last crew. So that, I think, um, is uh, the answer to the question. I could talk about all the others, I suppose, but well, the most human interest one was the spider, Arabella. Unfortunately, she passed away uh, after she got on the ground. All right. Um, so we do uh, have a book signing that's starting here in just a few minutes. Um, we can do one more rapid fire question um, really quick. Go ahead. What was that? Uh, real quick, the question is, how did the body chemistry change in space? And Jack, if you want to take that one, if you can. I think we have the doctors on board to talk about that one, I hope. Body chemistry, it took us uh, a little while to get uh, accustomed to being uh, back in weightlessness uh, and back in one gravity. And uh, I'm not sure that there was any, uh, um, I don't know much about the body chemistry getting back in space. One thing I do remember, though, is that uh, when we got back in space, we looked like we were healthy sitting on the, on the boat uh, two days away from San Diego. And they put us in the infirmary, uh, and, and we uh, they laid us out on these stretchers, you know, that have where you take a person to an emergency room, room on, an operating room on, had railings. And uh, it came time to go to sleep. So they turned out the lights in the room. There's a door over in the corner, slightly open. And that's the that's the bathroom. The light on. I in the middle of the night, I decided I had to go to the bathroom. So I grabbed a hold of those rails and floated myself. I thought over to that door, and I didn't go anywhere. Well, it was a it was a natural for me to try to float over that door. And even after I got back home, one week later, I was uh, in the, in the bathroom shaving. I picked up my shaving lotion. I wanted to put it on my face. I tried to float it to the other side of my other hand and it broke in the sink. So the, uh, one of the things that uh, stayed with us for a little while was some adaptation to being in zero gravity in a physical sort of way, I guess you might say. But you have to talk to the doctors and experimenters to see what was really different uh, in our, um, our um, response to getting back to zero gravity.
Perfect. Thank you, sir. Um, so real quick before everyone goes, thank you all for coming out. It's really amazing to hear the history of Skylab and how that's impacted what we've been doing now with the International Space Station and what NASA is going to be doing with the Artemis program as we go back to the moon. Um, real quick before you go, if you would like to do the book signing, it is over in the rotunda. I highly recommend picking up a copy of David's book. It is fantastic reading. So definitely do yourself a favor and snag one of those. Um, again, gentlemen, thank you for joining us today. It has been an honor to have you here. Thank you. And then in person, Emily and David as well. Thank you both for coming. That's it for this episode of the Cosmosphere podcast. We appreciate you listening. We would love to hear your feedback or questions, or if you have ideas for the show, please reach out to the Cosmosphere on social media um, and let us know what you think. We've got some exciting things lined up for this year, and we hope that you'll join us. Be sure to follow the Cosmosphere on social media. And as always, watch out on Cosmo.org for the calendar of events at the Cosmosphere. All of those links will be in the show notes for this episode, so make sure to check those out and follow along. We'd love to see you in person. For the Cosmosphere, I'm John Mulnix. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you soon.